Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. If this is your first ever time listening to this podcast of mine, hello, my name is Zach Twomley. I hope that if this is your first time, then you will continue to listen to this podcast of mine. And if it is not your first time and you just want me to get on with it, thank you for your patience. This is part four of When Diplomacy Fails' look at the Second Anglo-Dutch War, which waged from 1665 to 67. So, I hope you enjoy it. A tiny reminder before we begin that this is a listener-supported podcast, and that if you would like to check out the BFIT acronym, then I would really appreciate it, because... It is because of you guys that I get to keep on doing this. And in fact, the more of you that support this podcast, the less I will actually have to get a real job. So thanks. And let's begin. Welcome to episode four. In the last episode, we looked at Charles's triumphant entry into London and how his return affected the landscape of his realm. In this episode, we will examine one of the most significant early acts of his reign, his marriage to Portugal's Catherine of Braganza. While it appeared on paper to be a trivial example of strategic marriage, the whole tale of the Portuguese marriage was bound up with intrigue, secrecy and disappointment, and it's a great lens through which we can view the context of the era in European geopolitics. So let's begin. I will now take you to the date of the 23rd of May 1660 one more time, only this time we'll be looking at things from a bit of a different perspective. Marriage is an alliance entered into by a man who can't sleep with the window shut, and a woman who can't sleep with the window open. George Bernard Shaw
When Charles II sailed for Dover on the morning of the 23rd of May 1660, he may have believed that he was fulfilling his destiny, and that it was his role within the British Isles as its new Stuart King that was the all-important issue. But it's easy to forget that Charles was being watched with expectation not just by his loyal supporters at his side or by his royalist party in Britain. Indeed, Charles's return to Britain meant much for the future of Britain and its changing nature as a constitutional monarchy that wasn't quite ready to be a constitutional monarchy. But it also meant a great deal to those that watched him go. Charles had spent a great deal of time, nearly over a decade, as a pensionary of the courts of Europe and as a refugee reliant on their hospitality and generosity. It was only natural that such courts expected something of a return on that generosity, and that they expected Charles to make a significant contribution to European geopolitics in the process. By the time Charles made his triumphant return to London on his 30th birthday, the great war between France and Spain had come to an end. Yet, the ending of a war did not mean the ending of a rivalry. Too much was at stake between the two great rivals. Spain was the stubborn empire of various continents, with fingers in numerous pies, and markets that directly affected or interested the vast majority of European powers. Spain had a demonstrated record of survival and tenacity when it came to enduring long wars against its rivals, be it the Dutch or, more recently, the 25-year war with France. Spain was a deeply conservative, and in many ways socially backward, country by 1660, where court protocol gave unfamiliar foreign visitors a headache, and the apparent separation of the Spanish court from the worrying realities of its empire made it seem somewhat foolish to such observers, or worse. The Spanish Habsburgs had defined themselves by maintaining by sheer force of will and military might what should have collapsed a long time ago. The Spanish finances were in desperate need of reform. Its provinces were tied together by 14th century notions of union, with conflicting ideas left over from that period in the different regions over what the nature of the Spanish monarchy was and what it meant for each region. The Thirty Years' War had deeply troubled and confounded Spain. It had deprived it of its unquestioned military superiority. It had abruptly ended the partnership between Spanish and Austrian Habsburg families that had proved so beneficial, and it had shaved significant portions off of its historically underrated European empire, where regions on the French border that had once contained and threatened France had now been flipped against the Spanish influence, and made France all the stronger because of it. Added to this was the disconcerting lack of heirs available to the indomitable Spanish king, Philip IV. The same Philip whose grandfather Philip II had forced the rest of Europe to answer to the might of Spain before thinking of its own affairs. The same Philip who had made his enemies tremble with his voracious work ethic and power of his incredible kingdom. The same Philip who had opportunistically fused all elements of Iberian geography together into one kingdom, and who would redefine what it meant to rule an empire, upon which the sun never set. A comparison of Philip IV to his grandfather wouldn't necessarily have been fair, because the two ruled during different eras and faced very different challenges. 
Philip IV may have lamented that if only his grandfather hadn't kicked the can down the road so often where reform was concerned, then reform wouldn't be such an all-encompassing, insurmountable challenge now. Then again, though, Philip IV accepted, his grandfather ruled over the world's first superpower, and he would have seen no need to implement change while the going was good. By 1660, such change would either save Spain or doom it to years of infighting and rebuilding, as its rivals looked on with high ambitions and, gleefully rubbing hands, eager to steal what Spain had made. It was a commitment to preserve and maintain what the Spanish monarchy laid claim to that forced Philip IV to persevere with hopeless wars and unequal contests. It was the shame of losing what his grandfather had established that motivated him to get up in the morning, see the odds stacked against him, and spend more money trying to bring things back to the way they were. Money Spain no longer had, and would never be able to find. Such problems in inheritance, prestige and power may not have been so pressing, were Spain's power still apparently supreme, and were its image of supremacy over Europe somewhat intact. In other words, were no willing inheritors to Spain's mantle stepping up to the plate, then Spanish shortcomings wouldn't have been so dangerous. But they were dangerous, because not only were challengers emerging, but such challengers smelt blood in the Spanish waters. Foremost among these challengers was France, and it was ruled by Philip IV's nephew, Louis XIV. Louis XIV was unquestionably born into a world of conflict, but he was also born into a world of change. The change was emerging in the closing phases of the Thirty Years' War, which Louis XIV was symbolically born into, but Louis had the great fortune to be present to lead his country just at the time when said country was in a position to take back its old mantle of European first-rate power. It was a change Louis was determined to effect. He was capable, keenly aware of his role in French society and in its history, and well-educated as to the importance of war and peace in his kingdom's formation. Louis knew that France could be supreme, and that it could be supreme under his rule. He knew that to acquire such a position in the European food chain, he would have to topple Spain and take its place. Only Spain on the continent could prove the foil to Louis's ambitions. Only Spain could mobilise the kind of anti-French sentiment that Louis's advisers feared, and in many cases anticipated. For it was well recognised that French power was on the rise and Spanish on the decline. In such an atmosphere, the balance of power dictated that states would side with the weaker against the strong to prevent too great a change to the status quo. This meant, as Louis surely recognised, that he was destined to face coalitions against his designs in the future, and he would have to be ready for them when they materialised. As a young French king eager to prove himself, though, he had to balance such an expectation with the expectations of his own people, that he would bring glory to them and prestige to the French crown, and that he would establish France as supreme despite the risks. And the risks were great. Even with the peace treaties of Westphalia apparently having the effect of cementing the lessons of the Thirty Years' War, religious warfare's end did not mean the end of war, it just meant the beginning of war for new reasons. Instead of God, war was launched for reasons of state, and it would achieve statecraft like never before. It would redefine the map of Europe like never before. 
In anticipation of the prevalence of conflict in his future, Louis and his ancestors had worked hard to establish a web of familial ties, primarily to Spain, but also to Britain. At the same time as family ties established relations between these two powers, Cardinal Mazarin and Cardinal Richelieu before him had ensured that Sweden was financially dependent upon the French, while the Dutch were militarily reliant. The immediate question was the Franco-Spanish rivalry, dominated by the issue of European predominance, and manifesting itself in the conflicts over the Spanish Netherlands, which suggested wealth and prestige to Louis, as well as opportunism being right on his northeastern border. Louis's desire to claim and rule this prestigious, wealthy and prosperous enclave in Europe motivated a surprising amount of his actions for a great deal of his life. Yet, to Louis, the issue of the Spanish Netherlands was not merely geopolitical, but familial. Cardinal Mazarin had made sure, during the negotiations for peace with Spain, from the Peace of the Pyrenees, to leave a kind of ambiguity over the Spanish Netherlands present, where inheritance was concerned. By asking for a swollen dowry to cancel out, Louis's new bride, Maria Theresa's birthright, Mazarin could then argue, when the dowry predictably was not forthcoming, that Louis's bride and Philip IV's daughter had a right to rule the region. Such a claim would undoubtedly provoke a conflict with Spain, but it was at least a pretext in an era when such a thing was required to plunge one's country into war. If Louis appreciated that conflict was eventually going to come about, then he had just as good a reason as Philip to desire a coalition in his favour. Yet, Louis would have already been informed by Mazarin that it was a forlorn hope to anticipate a British alliance. Not only was France the traditional enemy of England, but Britain had spent six unprofitable years waging war against Spain alongside France, with very little to show for it. Furthermore, the psychologically refreshing act of breaking with the policies of Cromwell's protectorate and striving to redefine British foreign policy could not be underestimated. Mazarin largely expected Louis France to be the victim of Charles's attempts to prove his originality on the world stage by siding with Spain against all French issues. Were Charles to consult the weighing scales and consider the balance of power, Mazarin accepted, such a view would have made further sense. What was more, Charles had wandered across Europe's courts and gone from Paris to The Hague to minor German states to Bruges, but he had been a pensionary of the Spanish king Philip IV for most of his time in exile, and Charles gratefully returned such a gift by promising the Habsburg ruler that, if he were ever reinstated, he would aid Philip in crushing Spain's enemies, be they French, Portuguese, or even Dutch. Philip could have been tempted to take such promises with a pinch of salt, since Charles did after all spend much time in France and have a French mother and a French cousin in Louis XIV, but in a time when tides were turning in geopolitics, perhaps Philip hoped that strategic considerations would push Charles II over the edge and firmly into a Spanish alliance. It was Charles's good graces towards the Spanish only days before he sailed for Dover that seemed to solidify the expectation that an Anglo-Spanish alliance was forthcoming. Gerald G. Belcher, in his article, Spain and the Anglo-Portuguese Alliance of 1661, a reassessment of Charles II's foreign policy at the Restoration, gives weight to this expectation when, Gerald writes, 
During the weeks immediately before his departure from the continent in May 1660, Charles showed a decided deference to the representatives of the Spanish monarchy. An official state of war existed between Spain and Republican England, and when Charles was assured that he would be recalled, one of his first acts was to propose to the governor of the Spanish Netherlands a suspension of arms as a prelude to the end of that conflict. The king instructed his resident in Madrid, Sir Henry Bennett, to make a clear representation to Philip that he would always proceed with great respect towards his Catholic majesty. This was a significant step towards ending the unpopular war with Spain that had begun upon Cromwell's apparent victory over the Dutch in 1654. The Commonwealth had seen a raft of wars replace the promises of peace and tranquillity that it had made to its people, and the military-style rule of British provinces left a bad taste in the mouths of those that now expected Charles to embark on a new adventure in rule, defined by diplomacy rather than ruinous war. Charles went further than merely talking amicably with Spain, though. He also seemed to send a clear signal to Madrid that he wouldn't be having anything to do with their troublesome regional enemy since 1640, the Portuguese, as Gerald Belcher writes. The Spanish ambassador at The Hague reported that Charles refused to receive a Portuguese delegation while waiting to embark, an act which he considered to be an important demonstration on behalf of Philip IV. With French support, the Braganza dukes had secured their borders, but Philip IV steadfastly refused to recognise the loss of this province. The Peace of the Pyrenees in 1659, ending the long Franco-Spanish War, had cut Portugal off from French aid. The Portuguese ambassador had approached Charles to secure English backing for their continuing struggle against Spain. That he turned the minister away without hearing a word was an act of no small significance in Madrid. Charles had intimated to Philip that were Spain to send a Spanish ambassador to London, he would be warmly received. On top of this, in July 1660, Charles dismissed the French ambassador and made preparations to send a British plenipotentiary to Madrid. To the eager Philip IV, an English alliance seemed to be on the cards. This, coupled with the recent Spanish marriage to Louis XIV of France, suggested that Spain would be free from conflict with its usual rivals, and could instead focus on implementing the kind of reforms and consolidation that were so critically required to get Spain on track after a century of constant warfare. Alongside this anticipation of peace was Philip's expectation that old Spanish losses would be returned as well. Charles ruled over the likes of Denmark and Jamaica by 1660, two locations with vastly different purposes and levels of value to any enterprising state, and two locations which Cromwell's protectorate had seized or been rewarded during the war against Spain in the years before. Philip was desperate for these regions back, for Dunkirk because it would defend the Spanish Netherlands more tightly along the coast, and for Jamaica because it was the de facto capital of Spanish Caribbean communications and a critical hub of its far-flung empire. Now that Jamaica was in British hands, Spain had to spend a lot more on security and concern itself more regularly with matters of insurance and precaution in the region than it had done previously, and Philip longed for the old ways to return to that region. 
Philip had reasons to be positive, though, since Charles, upon his return to Britain, made every indication that an alliance was imminent and that Philip's favours would be reciprocated. Louis de Haro, Spain's first minister and a primary negotiator of the Peace of the Pyrenees with France, we met him in the first episode of this series, saw fit to congratulate Charles, His Most Serene Majesty, on the 20th of July 1660, for the decision to conclude an alliance with Spain. But it was far from a one-way street. Ever since arriving in Madrid, Britain's special ambassador, with great representative powers, had gone on record for saying that London looked forward to providing Spain with assistance against its Portuguese enemy. And even that 6,000 Irish soldiers, not really sure why their nationality was specified, would be en route by the autumn to help out in this venture. In such an atmosphere, it was little wonder that the governor of the Spanish Netherlands had begun to draw up plans to reincorporate Dunkirk into the Spanish defensive strategy for the region. The ambassador to Spain even claimed that Charles was in the process of handing Jamaica back over to Spain, a process which would take some time, but which Charles was committed to since he was so in Philip's debt. The great twist in the tale, and the sting that came from it in Philip's case, was the fact that on the 8th of May 1661, Charles's court announced the conclusion of an alliance with Portugal, and what was more, Charles committed himself as per the terms of the treaty to marry Catherine of the House of Braganza, the sole living daughter of the late Portuguese king. This ensured, rather than helping Spain, Britain would instead provide money and materials to Portugal, in place of France, who were now excluded from doing so owing to their peace with Spain. It also suggested to a horrified and bewildered Philip IV that Charles had gone back on his numerous promises and spurned all previous good deeds towards him, and in the process... One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, It's a a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So joined the French camp against Spain. 
Historians have since debated the terms of the Anglo-Portuguese alliance and what they meant both for Europe and for the House of Stuart. Many historians, in what has become the prevailing view, saw Charles' agreement to the Portuguese marriage as a manifestation of the fact that he had come under Louis XIV's spell. Charles's French mother also had a hand in such a spell being cast, as did Charles's own pro-French leanings, considering the years he had spent in the French court during his exile. This led to impressions garnered from history that the House of Stuart both began and ended as dependent upon France and Louis XIV's aid. It was under Louis' influence, after all, that Charles would insert the clause of the Anglo-Portuguese Agreement, which stated that England would provide men to fight against Spain, on the side of Portugal. And it was also Louis who committed himself to paying for those soldiers' expenses, so that in an indirect way he would still be able to stick it to his Spanish rival, even while both France and Spain were at peace. The most simple explanations, as Occam's razor suggests, are usually the right ones, but in this case, generations of historians working on the assumption of Charles's weakness and Louis's strength missed key facts about the agreement. Charles didn't agree to marry Catherine of Braganza because he was in awe of France or because he had joined the pro-French and thus anti-Spanish camp. For starters, this assumes too much malice on the part of Charles against Spain, but it also betrays Occam's razor itself, since if one was to look at the actual facts on the ground during the time that the agreement between Portugal and Britain was signed, a different picture of Charles and his decision-making emerges. Charles did not place himself, or even seek to place himself, within the confines of the Franco-Spanish rivalry at the very time when his throne was new and his position far from guaranteed. Though Europe was certainly dominated by the rivalry between Bourbon and Habsburg, Charles did not feel he had to choose, nor was he under much pressure to. As Gerald Belcher explains, There is little evidence that Charles's government was desirous or capable of implementing grand plans to fit England within the power struggles of the day. This was because, as Belcher went on to explain, the peace of the Pyrenees had ended the war between the two continental rivals. It didn't mean that the rivalry was over, as we have ascertained, but it did mean that conflict was, and thus the impetus behind picking sides was not as strong as one might have expected. If he was not forced to pick a side by either Philip IV or Louis XIV, then Belcher believes quite reasonably that Charles would have been foolish to have alienated potential friends by acting decisively and aggressively during his early years. The disorganisation, unsteadiness and legendary poverty of his newly restored court permitted him to do little except exist from day to day. Following on from this assertion, Belcher concluded that Charles's first priorities were to strengthen his position in England and build up his meagre resources. It is in these contexts that one must view the Portuguese alliance. Context, then, is the all-important animal, and one which we've encountered a lot in previous episodes and specials. It is only by looking through the lens of the era armed with all the facts that we can see the simpler explanation for why Charles acted as he did. He was not a paid-off turncoat in awe of his cousin's power and eager to place the diplomatic capabilities of his own kingdom in a box through acting. Instead, he was acting with his own kingdom's benefits firmly in mind. 
That Charles was looking out for number one is of course a far simpler and more reasonable explanation than the alternative enduring narrative that he sought to create a divide in Europe and polarise his older benefactor, since the latter is fraught with far more risk in the tenuous time that Charles operated within. Now that we've cleared that up, we must tackle the other glaring question. Charles acted as he did because he believed he was fulfilling for England the best possible deal he could get under the circumstances, right? But how good was that deal exactly, and was it worth the snubbing of Spain that his agreement to the marriage and alliance would cause by proxy rather than by design? Let's investigate. The most important motivating force behind the treaty with Portugal, and its marriage, was money. Charles had never known economic plenty in his youth, and knew well the troubled state of his kingdom when he took back the throne in 1660. Britain was £2 million in debt, hard cash was difficult to find, and Charles had been repeatedly bombarded with requests from merchants and nobles, urging him to effect more trade and bring in more money. Portugal on paper didn't seem an especially obvious way to bring such monies back into English coffers, but looks could be deceiving. Though they had been under the Spanish thumb and fought Spain for over 20 years, Portuguese trade networks remained vast in Asia and South America. Tapping into such markets meant that Charles would be able to penetrate Mediterranean markets, as well as trade directly with Brazilian merchants, a lucrative incentive. Furthermore, a Portuguese deal brought with it new territory as part of Catherine of Braganza's dowry. Tangier and Bombay would fall under the British sphere, while the Portuguese East Indies would become fair game as well. These were hugely successful enterprises in their own right, and could show Charles a thing or two about competing with the Dutch, since the Portuguese had been doing that for decades. Under the mission of acquiring as much money as possible, Charles also looked at the dowry that Catherine could provide, apart from the new territories and prestige it would bring London. £500,000 was the official price of the dowry. This was to be paid some in coin and some in priceless goods on the Portuguese markets, but the bottom line, as Charles discovered, was that such goods and coin were forthcoming and that the Portuguese were not about to disappoint him. It was a conclusion reached by Charles which is best summarised by Jared Belcher when he wrote, Spain lost, not to France for political reasons, but to Portugal for economic reasons. It was not a question of who to ally with, but who Charles could get the most money out of. This was doubly true for the marriage dowry, which, as we have seen, was enormous. Portugal was the only state in Europe capable of fulfilling the important prerequisite for a British marriage. The price that a cash-strapped Charles demanded for his hand in marriage was bound to be high, but Portugal's resurgent economy and far-flung empire was the only power willing to meet it. Philip IV, when he found out that such a dowry was offered by Portugal, determined to supply one of his own to any European princess that Charles could find, since he didn't have any heirs left of his own after he married his daughter off to Louis, in the hope that Britain would not be tied to Spain's bitter enemy in Portugal. This, historians have claimed, proves that Philip was genuine, and Charles was actually determined to bring about a rupture when he refused this offer. But Philip's claims were far from competitive. 
And what was more, Charles's advisors assured him that Philip was in no position to pay what he had promised. Charles needed little persuading, as the underrated fact of the Anglo-Portuguese negotiations was the small caveat that Charles had seen firsthand how broke and self-interested Philip IV of Spain's court truly was. In 1656, Charles II had entered into an alliance with Philip IV while in exile. The plan was for both to mutually benefit the other. Charles's initial impression of Philip was that he was a powerful prince who, being engaged in a war against our rebels, will give us all of the assistance he can. Philip certainly was at war with our rebels, or the Commonwealth of the British Isles by 1656, since the war between Spain and the British Commonwealth began in 1654, only a few weeks after the war with the Dutch had ended, but Spain was also at war with France and Portugal, and such conflicts had long since worn the Castilian throne down. As per the terms of the 1656 alliance, Charles had to agree to do the following. He would establish a full peace with Spain when he was reinstated as king, he would progress that peace into an alliance, he would return Dunkirk and Jamaica to Spain, and he would keep English tradesmen and privateers out of the West Indies to the best of his ability. As far as commercial trade with Spain went, Charles would have to declare his contentment with a treaty from 1630 that accounted for none of the deficiencies in Spain's position which had occurred since that date, or for the changes in England's position that had also occurred. In 1630, Spain was a first-rate power that had endured a few setbacks, but in 1660 it was a great power but generally viewed as being in decline. Those 30 years had changed a lot. In return for all these concessions, Philip would pay 20,000 Spanish crowns to Charles, money which Charles could use to prepare for an invasion of his homeland, so that he could topple the Commonwealth and re-establish the Stuart dynasty. This agreement was signed and apparently official, with Charles and his exiled pals telling all who would listen of their powerful Spanish friends, but it soon became clear that there was trouble in paradise. Philip quite simply did not have or did not want to give the money, and over the next four years the correspondence of Charles and all his reps are filled with frustrated protestations towards Philip and his delaying tactics as it became more and more obvious that Charles wouldn't see a single red cent of what he had been promised. Technically Charles was free from his obligations so long as the payment was no longer forthcoming. This would be a common theme of European deals in the future, but even in the monthly pension Philip IV was meant to put up as part of the terms of the alliance the Spanish king was late. 8,000 florins was supposed to be the allowance for an exiled British monarch, but after only two years Philip was in debt to Charles for 100,000 florins that he still owed him. Charles could excuse the Spanish king for the first few months of delaying since he didn't want to sour relations or look a gift horse in the mouth, but after a while the delaying grew more obvious and the lies about the money more insulting, and Charles was growing despondent. In his complaints to the governor of the Spanish Netherlands, Charles forced the latter to talk directly to Philip about the issue of money. When this governor did, Philip replied sheepishly that the money had already been sent, only to say later in the same letter that the governor in question should raise the funds in the Spanish Netherlands himself. 
Even more incredibly, Philip jumped at the chance to abandon Charles and was not the loyal ally he later claimed to be. When that same governor of the Spanish Netherlands proposed that it would always be cheaper to abandon Charles and make peace with Cromwell, Philip gave him the go-ahead and Charles was warned of this by his network of spies. The sheen of the alliance with Spain was gradually wearing off, even upon Cromwell's death when the likelihood of Charles's return grew. The repeated disappointments in money led Charles to conclude that Philip had only agreed to this alliance for prestige, and with the aim of placing Charles in his debt once he came to the throne. Perhaps Philip intended to pay at some point, but believed he would have longer than the four years he had. Perhaps, but Charles could see even as late as January 1660, when people began clamouring for his return, that Philip simply didn't have the funds. It is unlikely Charles would even have accepted them by that point anyway. In the final year of his exile, Charles became more disenchanted with the Spanish alliance, as bills of credit so shaky they were worthless even in Madrid, and methods for raising such bills were so backward, that his confidence in Spanish processes and means sank to an all-time low. In the middle of July 1660, into this void of disappointment, the Portuguese ambassador proposed a marriage to Catherine of Braganza and an alliance with Portugal in secret to Charles. By now, Charles II was home, secure on the throne after a bloodless coup, and eager to demonstrate to his people that he had their best interests at heart through a good and profitable marriage. Whereas the Portuguese enjoyed full diplomatic representation, Charles had yet to welcome a Spanish counterpart to London. The Spanish, according to the governor of the Spanish Netherlands, had been advised by Madrid's Council of Foreign Affairs to play hard to get where the issue of an alliance with Britain was concerned. An incredible policy to take, considering how repeatedly frustrated and disappointed Charles had been with Spain and Philip's court in the past. The problem was that the officials who approved such a policy were mostly blinded to the reality on the ground. They believed, in other words, in their own hype, while Charles and his advisers had come to realise that Spanish promises weren't worth the paper they were printed on, especially if such promises mentioned money. Charles was, of course, cautious with the Portuguese, because he didn't want Philip to be hostile when he found out, and because there was no guarantee that negotiations with Portugal would produce any fruit. When the Portuguese ambassador left to present the terms of the Anglo-Portuguese alliance and marriage to the court in Lisbon, a Spanish ambassador arrived in London. For the next few months, Charles was pressured with the idea that Spain would declare war if it was snubbed, and he seemed close to cracking under the threats before the Portuguese rep returned to London, this time with confirmation that the money, the marriage and the alliance would be forthcoming. The Portuguese diplomat brought something else of value too. More financial incentives, the equivalent of £5,000 as a gift to Charles. It was a small gesture, but it worked. The Portuguese knew full well that Charles had been humiliated and disappointed by the scant Spanish during his exile, and this token would demonstrate to him that not only could they afford the large dowry which was to come, but that this was merely the beginning of a very profitable friendship that all could benefit from. An added bonus to Charles was not so much what he would gain, but what he would be able to hold on to with the deal from Portugal. 
every prerequisite from Philip of Spain demanded that Charles hand over Jamaica and Dunkirk. For Charles to do so after his restoration would have been nothing short of humiliating, and even dangerous considering the concerns of his merchants with markets and the concerns of his court with prestige. If Charles treated with Portugal, he could keep the old possessions gained during Cromwell's era. He would gain new ones as well, like Bombay and Tangier, and he would be bombarded with vast sums of cash and goods that he would be able to sell on to the tune of 500 grand. All of these were important strategic, commercial and economic incentives to agree, and Charles hoped that the costs of such ventures, chief among them offending Philip by agreeing to support troops to Portugal, could be forgiven in time. Even in this latter clause, Charles was thinking economically. He did not agree to let Louis XIV foot the bill because he was planning a joint French attack against Spain, but because this would further reduce the costs he would have to put up, and thus increase the returns of the Portuguese agreement. Louis indeed had nothing to do with the marriage at all, and he only intervened when it was learned that troops would be sent to Portugal. Louis intervened for his own interests, and Charles agreed to this intervention from his cousin for his. Charles was obsessed with the acquisition of money. As a youth, he had never had enough. As a king, he was always short, and as a man, he always wanted or expected more. Portugal provided this at minimal financial cost, and Charles believed that by maintaining a warm personal relationship with Philip IV of Spain, he could limit this cost even further. Charles's diplomacy is thus a good deal more multi-layered than it appears on paper. While it may seem easy to discount Charles as Louis's puppet, as many historians have done, the truth is far more interesting. Charles was motivated by his need for money and prestige, both of which he wished to gain at minimal cost to himself and his kingdom. The last thing he wanted was to place England in a box. Thus he sought to negotiate around the Franco-Spanish rivalry, and rely on his own personal relationship with Philip, and the growing strength of his position, to create a diplomatic third way, all in the name of cash. It was, objectively, a fairly successful policy, because though Philip grumbled loudly for a few weeks after learning of the deal, it was unquestionable that he could declare war for such a minor snub. Spain, as Philip IV knew all too well, could not afford such a venture as a war with England. Before long, Philip had to accept that the nature of the balance of power and the positive impact British trade was having on his coffers had been worth the snub, and that Charles's friendship was too important to jeopardise. Louis' France was a far more important threat to focus one's resources on, and thus after a short period of diplomatic coolness, Full diplomatic representation and an eagerness to conclude a new alliance on new terms with Britain was sought, just as conflict appeared inevitable between Britain and the Dutch. As this episode has shown, there was in fact far more behind the spectacle of Catherine of Braganza arriving in Britain than there might appear. This event, as with anything else like it during that era, was an eventuality reached following years of intrigue, secret diplomacy, backstabbing and hurt feelings. At the centre of it all, in this case, was the unassuming Charles II, just trying to get the best deal for his kingdom, and determined to make as much money in the process. Next time we'll see where Charles's attentions were turned to after this event, as his merchants, his court and indeed some of his citizens 
began clamouring for him to deal once and for all with that troublesome state across the Channel. This people were not the French, though. They were the Dutch, and Britain had beaten them before. This time, Charles's advisers told him, Britain had even more justification for going to war. And this time, he was told, the impact of his victory would be even greater than before. The Portuguese knew full well that Charles had been humiliated and disappointment. Why do I keep doing that? Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 